Second Samuel 6. So David is now the king. He's the king of all Israel. It's taken 20 plus years, but he's, he's made it. He's on the throne and he's established Jerusalem as his capital. First time we have Jerusalem as a capital city, it's been a, a, a city that God has said to the Israelites, you need to take this city. And for 800 years, they've been un, unable to. And David finishes the, the deal. He's able to capture Jerusalem, to kick out the Jebusites, and he establishes Jerusalem as his capital. In 2 Samuel 6, David decides to go get the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and bring it to Jerusalem. So let me give you some background on that. Here's a picture of the Ark, not the real one, but a replication of the ark. It was a, a small wooden box that was overlaid with gold. God gave Moses very specific instructions on what the ark, the dimensions, the material, and uh, all of these, all the ornamentation. In the ark of the covenant, you had the two stone tablets that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. So you had the Ten Commandments in that uh, box. But, but the, the big, the, the, the major significance where those two angel wings come together, those things are called, are called cherubim, and where they touch, God was said, I'm going to meet you right there. So if there is a throne of God on earth, it's, actually, it's right there. It's called the mercy seat. And that's where God met the high priest once a year, where the high priest would offer atonement for all of the sins of the nation of Israel. Right there, he'd sprinkle blood right there on top of that atonement cover, and God said, that's where I'm going to meet you. So the ark is very much uh, tied to the presence of God. So we haven't seen the ark since 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's been over 50 years. Let me remind you of the, the story of the ark in 1 Samuel. So when 1 Samuel opens, the ark is in Shiloh. That's the number one. There's a thing called the Tent of Meeting, which God gave Moses his blueprint. It's basically a, a portable sanctuary. So everywhere Israel goes as they move around, they set up this sanctuary. And in the Holy of Holies, the innermost place, they put the ark. And that's where the high priest can go once a year to offer atonement for the sins of Israel. And so the, the Tent of Meeting and the ark are in Shiloh, the beginning of 1 Samuel. And then the Israelites fight the Philistines in a battle in Ebenezer. That's number two. And they lose. And so they say, you know what? We need a good luck charm. Let's go get the ark. And so they bring the ark just as a good luck charm. If we have the ark, then we have God and he's going to help us win. And God doesn't respond. God does not fight for Israel. Israel loses at Ebenezer. And the Philistines who beat them take the ark and bring it back to their country. So they go all the way down to Ashdod, that number three. That's one of their primary cities. And they put the ark in a temple of their god, Dagon, as a spoil of war. And they go into the temple the next day and they see their idol, their statue of Dagon is fallen over. His head's broken off. His hands are broken off. And all of the people in the city start to get tumors. And they connect that to the ark and they say, we don't want it anymore. So they send it to Gath, another one of their, their cities. And the Bible says that city is thrown into a great panic by God, and they start getting tumors, and they say, we don't want it anymore, so they send it to Ekron, number five, and the people in Ekron, you can imagine, why, why are you sending it to us? And so they get tumors, and the threat of death is heavy upon them, and they say, let's just get rid of it. There's five major cities in Philistia, three of them, the ark has come through and that passed on, the other two don't want anything to do with it, so they send it back to Israel. They put the ark on a cart, they hitch the cart up to two cows and just let it go. 
and it winds up in Beth Shemesh, number six, which is an Israelite city and seems like it would be the great place for the ark to rest. Uh, the, the Levites are one of the tribes of Israel, and their job was to take care of the holy things. And there were three major groups of Levites. One of them were called the Kohathites, and their job was to take care of the ark. They couldn't touch it, but they were the ones who were responsible for transporting it. So they were familiar with the ark. And those guys happened to live in Beth Shemesh, so it seems very providential. Hey, here's the ark. But those guys, they seem to maybe have lost uh, respect for the ark and lost a sense of, of who it is who's in their, in their midst. And so some of them look inside the ark and God kills 70 of them just like that. They drop dead. And so they say, we don't want it either. And so they send it to number seven, Kiriath Jerom. It's a guy's house named Abinadab. And the ark, so this wooden box overlaid with gold with the Ten Commandments, the angels Wings where the the mercy seat where God meets with his people, that ark stays in this guy's Abinadab's house for 50 something years. All through the reign of Saul, the 40 years that Saul reigned, he never sought to bring the ark to Gibeah where he led. There's no indication that he ever went to Abinadab's house to to be in the presence of the Lord. There's no, no connection between Saul and the ark. And now David is the king. He's established Jerusalem as his capital, and he says, let's bring it here. Let's have this this symbol of God's presence at the center of our nation. So that's where chapter 6 picks up. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah. That's another name for Kiriath Jerem. To bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. There you see that idea where the ark is the throne of God. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Sakon, excuse me, of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. That's Jerusalem. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. We'll pause there. So David gets a group of 30,000 troops. Don't know why he... Took such a large number of soldiers. I don't know if it was some sign of respect for the ark. Maybe he did it. Maybe he was afraid the Philistines were going to attack and he wanted to protect the ark. We don't know. But he goes to Kiriath Jerem, to Abinadab's house, to bring the ark back. And I think he's got the greatest of intentions. I think his heart is pure. First Chronicles 13 gives the story in a little bit greater detail. And you can see he's, he's consulted the military commanders. He's consulted the people. His reasoning there is in yellow. Let us bring the ark of God back to us. Why? Because we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. I think his intentions are good. He has established a new capital city. And I think he wants the ark, this symbol of God's presence, in the center of their life as a people. 
and everything seems to be going well. They get to Abinadab's house. Abinadab sends two of his sons, Ahio and Uzzah, back with the ark to escort it. They've been around the ark their entire lives. They should know what they're doing. They put it on a cart, and they start walking back. It's eight or nine miles from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, the oxen stumble, and Uzzah, who's behind the cart, I think, again, with the best of intentions, it's, it's, even, it's a, a natural re- reaction, just reaches out to steady the ark. He doesn't want it to fall off the cart. It's a wooden box. Maybe it breaks. It gets dirty. It's disrespectful. For whatever reason, he, he does that. And again, I think his heart is pure in reaching out. I think his intentions are right. And in that moment, we read that God's anger burns against Uzzah, and he strikes him down. Just like that. And then David gets angry at what God has done to Uzzah. God is angry at Uzzah, and David then gets angry at God. This word, a reverend act, that word never appears anywhere else in the Old Testament. We don't know exactly what it means. But Uzzah did something that was deeply offensive to the Lord. So much so that the response was immediate death. And then David gets angry back at him. And it's interesting, the words there, if you were here last week, we talked about God as a God who breaks forth. That's what David calls God in Second Samuel 5 when God... Uh, defeats the Philistines on Israel's behalf, and he renames a place, Baal, Perazim, the God who breaks forth. That's the exact same word that's used about uh, in relationship to Uzzah here. Last week, we saw God breaking forth against the Philistines. This week, we see God breaking forth against Uzzah, the exact same word. And so for, for me, the question is, well, what in the world do Philistines who are enemies of God's people, who are attacking God's people on land that God has given to them. What's the connection between them and Uzzah, who is one of God's people, and I think with the best of intentions, reaches out and touches the ark? God's response to both of them is the same. And so for me, the, the connection has to be the actions of both of them in God's eyes are the same, if not very similar. In both cases, you have, in one case the Philistines, in one case Uzzah, you have people who are acting disobediently to the Lord, irreverently towards him. The Philistines by encroaching on God's land that he's given to his people, and Uzzah by touching a holy object that he's not allowed to touch. Only the priests were allowed to get that close to the ark, and Uzzah is not a priest, and that's the, that's the judgment for that act. And so after David, it seems quick to me, he's angry, and then I think he pretty quickly gets scared. And he says, if this is how it's going to be, I don't want anything to do with the ark. Fortunate, God's response to Uzzah, and he's like, I don't want it. And I'm trying to figure out exactly how this works. He says, I I don't want the ark with me. Maybe Obed-Edom will take it, which I don't know if that's good leadership or not. I'm afraid of the ark, but maybe it'll be okay with you. And so he sends the ark to Obed-Edom's house, who's a Levite. So maybe he's thinking, well, he's at least in the right tribe, so maybe he'll know how to handle this thing. And for three months, the ark is with Obed-Edom, and God blesses him. Nobody dies, there's no tumors, nobody gets struck down. And verse 12 is the pivot point of the chapter, I believe. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So, I think that's the key word. Excuse me. So David went to bring, the, to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. To the city of David with rejoicing. So David hears, okay, it's been for three months, 
Everything's been not just okay at Obed-Edom's house. Everything's been great. God has been blessing him. And so he decides, well, then, then it's safe, in a sense, to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. It's not just there's something with the ark. And if you, if you, if you, God, if you accidentally do the wrong thing or if it's touchy and it's sensitive and you don't know how God's going to respond, it's kind of this radioactive thing and we just want to stay away from it. David, I think over the course of those three months, he's, some things have shifted in his heart. We'll talk about that in a second. And he's decided, okay, I can go get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem now. So when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched him from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned to his home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in high honor. I'll be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So David has, he, he, he goes back for the ark. It's a different approach. First Chronicles 15 gives you a little more background on this. Those verses will be up there and you can see the difference. The first time he seems to approach this as a king. He goes to his military commanders and he takes a detachment of 30,000 soldiers. This time, he goes to the priests and the Levites and he says, let's figure this thing out. It was because we didn't, we didn't inquire of the Lord the first time. That's why Uzzah died. We didn't inquire of the Lord. Y'all are the ones who are supposed to be carrying this ark. And there, I think in the, the three-month period, David realizes, okay, God struck Uzzah down he doesn't strike Obed-Edom down. Far from that, he blesses him. So he begins to say, okay, so what's, what's the difference here between these two guys? Why would God judge one and bless the other? And he asks the priests, he asks the Levites, he inquires of the Lord. I think he probably went back and he read the law, he read Exodus, he read Leviticus, he read Numbers. And in all three of those books, it says, here's how you carry the ark. You don't put it on a cart. And not just anybody gets to carry it. There's this certain group of people, the Kohathites, and they get to carry it, and they have to carry it on poles. There are rings on each of the four feet of the ark, and they're permanent, and you run poles through those rings, and they put the poles on their shoulders. There's no stumbling. There's no touching of the ark. It's actually supposed to be covered, three layers of material over the ark. Nobody can even look at it. God is very specific in those books. Here's how the ark is to be transported, and David didn't do it the first time. And he did it the second time. 
He approaches it the second time not as a king, in my opinion. He approaches it, this endeavor as a priest. He's wearing what a priest wears, a linen ephod. That's like a, that's a one-piece tunic. That's what he's wearing. He's blessing the people. That's a priestly action. He's offering sacrifices, a priestly action. After they take six steps, he offers a fattened calf and a bull. And according to some Hebrew manuscripts, every six steps, he makes that same sacrifice. That's a lie. You have the worship, you have the celebration. They enter Jerusalem. He offers more sacrifices. He gives every person in the crowd, however many thousands that is, he gives all of them a gift, extravagant in his generosity. It's a huge celebration for the people of Jerusalem. David is feeling great, and everybody is thrilled. Everybody except his wife, except for Michael. And when she sees David out the window and she sees him coming in in this linen ephod, which is not, he's not wearing his kingly robe. The pic, when I think of an ephod, it's probably not the greatest thing. I think of those old um, cartoons with uh, Scrooge, that Ebenezer Scrooge, like that thing that he wore. Like in my mind, what British guys wore to sleep, like that one piece deal, that long, that's what an ephod is, something like that. So that's what he's wearing. It's not distinguished at all. And he's dancing, and he's probably sweaty at this point, and he's shouting. And she looks at him, and what the writer says is she despises him. That word speaks to contempt. There's a guy named John Gottman. He's a marriage guru. He does what he calls a research-based approach to relationships. And he's studied couples over 40 years, and he has these indicators. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse of marriage. And he says the, the number one, he can, he can read it in people's re, uh, interactions, is contempt. If he sees contempt between a couple, he marks it down and says they're done. They're moving towards divorce. And that's what you see here in Michael. She's done with him. She despises him. She has contempt for David in her heart. She's done. And so David, he doesn't know that, that he, she sees him from the window. He doesn't know. All the, most of the, it sounds like everybody else, including the women, are participating in this celebration. Michael is not. David finishes the sacrifices. He gives everybody a gift and he goes home. And you can imagine how he would feel. Like, you think about that for you. He's going home thinking it's been a good day. They brought the ark back. Nobody died. Everybody was excited. Everyone got a gift. And he's going home, the Bible says, to bless his family. And as soon as he walks in the door, maybe you've experienced this, she tees off. And you can hear the sarcasm in her voice. You can kind of sense her sneering at him. How distinguished you were today, walking around half naked. That word distinguished, it's, there's actually a play on words that we don't pick up in English, all around the idea of heaviness or weightiness. That's what that word distinguished, that's the underlying root of it. it it's this idea of David was not, she's saying how weighty you were today, how significant you were today. And he says, I'll be light. I'll be undignified. I'll be even lighter than I have been. I'll be even less heavy, even less weighty than I have been. But these servant girls, they're going to hold me in honor. They're going to recognize my weightiness. And he has this haymaker that he throws at her. And maybe you have one as well. And it ends every argument. Remember, God picked me. He didn't pick anybody in your family. He picked me. And that's, they're done at that point. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of love either way. 
Not the most gracious response from David, for sure. And God judges Michael, and she doesn't have any more children for the rest of her life. So everyone's thrilled except Michael, and we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, towards the end. I feel like a lot of the things that are happening with Michael are actually tied to David. She's not judged because she despised David. She's judged because she despised the presence of God connected to this ark coming into Jerusalem. That's what she's judged for. However, I don't know that David made it easier for her uh, to connect to the Lord. I actually think he may have been a bit of an obstacle. We'll talk about that in a minute. Before we do, let me just say this about worship. That's obviously a key point of chapter 6, this idea of worship. I read this book a couple of weeks ago called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. You want to sound smart, get a lot of initials in your name. It's, uh, it's pretty good. It's called The Spiritual Power of habit. His thesis is the title of the book. We are what we love. So the things um, that we desire form and shape who we are. And our habits, th- those are decisions that we can make over time. Our habits can determine our appetites and our appetites determine who we become. And he uses worship as a way, as a, as a habit. That's something in his particular view, he would not enjoy what we do at all. Uh, He has a different philosophy of worship, but I like the underlying thesis that says the habits that we practice form our appetites, and the appetites, our appetites, our hungers, our loves, our desires form and shape who we become. And he uses food as an example. And he says, you know, if you begin to eat vegetables over time, you will develop a liking for vegetables. I've never tested that, but it's probably true. Over time, and there's some research that says those things are true with high fructose corn syrup or whatever, that those things that we eat, we actually begin to crave them, spiritual lives. And he says worship is the place not, he actually says where we don't express, where we're formed, I would say it's both, where we're formed by God. Worship is a place where our desires are formed. And if we'll practice habits in worship, God will form our appetites. We'll begin to crave and desire and love the things he does, and then we'll become the kind of people he desires for us to be. It's an interesting concept, I think. I think you see here in 2 Samuel 6 both pieces of worship, both worship as formation and worship as expression. When God strikes down Uzzah, that is a formative experience in the life of those people who witness it. They see something about God that's true that they may have forgotten. It could have been that 50 years with the ark, familiarity kind of bred contempt in Uzzah. He forgot who he was. He forgot what he was in proximity to and who he was in proximity to. And in that moment, when he reached out, even with good intentions, and touched the ark, again, kind of, in a sense, touches the presence of God and he struck down. It reminds everybody of God's holiness. It's a formative moment. You can see it changes David. When he comes back the next time, it's not the same. He doesn't come as a king. He comes as a prophet. He doesn't bring 30,000 soldiers. He brings priests and he brings Levites. His entire approach is different, and I think it's because of what happened that first time. He, he was reminded of who God is. It was formative for him. And you also see the expressive side of David, the expressive side of worship. See the extravagance in the offerings that he makes? Can you imagine a, fat, a bull and a fattened calf 
once or every six steps, plus the fellowship and burnt offerings he offers when he gets back to the city, plus giving every man and woman who's there basically a party favor. Can you imagine the, the personal cost to David? He's expressing his love for and devotion to God. The leaping, the dancing, the shouting, the singing, very highly expressive. And we see both elements of worship here in this chapter. I don't know which way you lean. If you lean more towards worship as a place where God forms me and shapes me and I learn more about who he is. When I I say worship, think of intentional engagement, what we do here but beyond what we do here on a Sunday. Do you see that as a place where you naturally are like... uh, being formed and shaped by the Lord. Do you see worship more as an opportunity for you to express your commitment to him and your love for him? Most of us are bent one way or the other. I want to encourage you to grab onto both this morning and recognize what worship can be and what I would say maybe God intends for it to be. So this is low-hanging fruit. The Super Bowl is tonight. It's the closest thing as a country that we have to a national worship service. It's the, it's it, it not, I'm not joking. It is, it is Easter and Christmas Eve all wrapped up into one for the American religion. Over eight, over a hundred million people have watched it for the last eight years, and advertisers know that five million dollars for a thirty-second ad tonight. And those guys aren't just throwing the money away. The reason they're spending five million dollars is they know they know they're going to make it back. Those ads are not selling you a bag of chips, and they're not selling you a car. They're trying to form who you are. They're reaching beneath your mind to your heart. And they're saying, let me sell you a version of life. And let me sell you a version of yourself. If you only have fill in the blank, then you will become fill in the blank. None of that works in our brains. We know Doritos don't make us a different kind of person. That's why they're not appealing to your mind. They're appealing to your heart. We know that just because if you have a particular drink, it doesn't suddenly make you attractive to model-level men and women. They're not appealing to your mind. They're appealing to your heart. We know if we're driving a particular car or going to a particular place, it doesn't somehow, it doesn't change who we are. They're not appealing to your mind. They're appealing to your heart. They're trying to form your appetites. They know if they can form your appetite, then you will begin to love what they are offering. They own you. It's a worship service tonight. Watch it for sure. Watch, but watch it discerningly. Recognize what they're selling you is not a product. They're selling you an ideal of who you can be and what your life can be like if you'll just buy this thing. They're not making the connection like this because it's stupid. And they know it is. And they know you're smart enough to figure it out. So they bypass your head and go straight to your heart. They're trying to form your loves. Don't let them. They're spending $5 million for 30 seconds of your attention to try to grab your heart. Don't let them. Don't let them. You, we swim in that all Day, all week, all month, all year long, we swim amid these messages that are trying to entice us, not our brains, our hearts. They're trying to grab our hearts. If you'll just fill in the blank, then you will become. 
None of it is true. None of it is true. I would encourage you, allow worship to be the place where your heart is formed, where your desires are formed. Practice habits that will increase your desires, increase your appetites for the things of the kingdom. Then you'll wind up becoming a person of the kingdom, not by adoption. That's a gift uh, of grace to us that we receive at salvation, but by behavior. If you want to be a person who prays, then start to pray. If you say, I would really like to love prayer, I just don't, then pray and you will. Not in a week and not in a month, but over time. You will. I don't run. I talk to people who do. And they say, they say, I actually look forward to it. Imagine that. I look forward to it. People over here run on vacation. Who does that? Because they love it. They love it. They run, and it's formed and shaped who they are. Now they're runners, and they love it. The same thing is true of our spiritual practices. If we buy, those things shape. If if we allow the advertising and the, the values of the world to shape our hungers and our desires, then that's what we become. If you allow your spiritual habits to shape your form, to, to shape your hungers and your desires, then that's who you will become. Practice the thing, practice those disciplines that will stir the hungers, that will lead you to be who, in your mind, who God has created and formed you to be. Super Bowls tonight. Some people paint, are y'all face painters? Not for this one for sure, right? Maybe they'll both lose. So some people, we do that. Low-hanging fruit. Worship as expressiveness. Many of us are reserved in our expression of commitment to and love for the Lord. But we're, very, we're much more demonstrative in other arenas. Maybe because it feels okay or it's socially acceptable. And so people act like idiots when it comes to sports, for instance, who would never in a million years clap their hands in a worship service because it doesn't seem appropriate or because they're embarrassed or whatever. Again, it's low-hanging fruit. I, I don't, you be as expressive and demonstrative as you want at whatever sporting event that you're a part of. For, that doesn't matter to me. I would just say, let's look at both. And let's make sure that our commitment to and love for a particular team and our expression of that does not bypass and surpass our commitment to and love for Jesus. If love demands expression... And I show it here on things that we would all say are, are good but not great, temporal, not eternal, then why do I hesitate to show it here? And that would be my challenge to you. It would not be to temper your excitement and enthusiasm in anything that you're engaged in. It would be to say, what would it look like for you to express your level of commitment to and love for the Lord in worship as well. Worship is not just formation. It's not just where God forms our hearts and our desires and our loves. It's also an opportunity. It's also expression. It's an expre- a place for us to display to the Lord our commitment to and our love for him. So I would encourage you on, on both of those fronts. See worship as both formation and expression. Which one do you lean to? What does it look like for you to lean back the other way? Three minutes on this. It's not a fully developed idea, but I thought it might be important. Many of us think of, it's going to be five minutes. Many of us think of influence as reach. 
You see that with Uzzah. Because David is the king, he influences what, uh, he, he has an influence over the way the ark is brought back the first time and the second time. He's the king. People do what he says. Uz is 100% responsible for his actions. He was judged for what he did. He can't blame David at all. At the same time, David created the context in which Uzzah was struck down. If David had read Numbers chapter 4 before he went to Abinadab's house, none of that happens. Because it says, it's these guys on poles, on their shoulders. Like, that's how you carry it. If he would have read it, they'd have been okay, but he didn't. And he says that. We didn't inquire of the Lord. That's what he says in 1 Chronicles 15. And, and Uzzah, again, 100% his fault. He is responsible for his response. However, David created the context. He has influence on us. And that's how many of us, when we think of influence, we think of reach. How many people are kind of under my umbrella? I want you this morning to think of influence as gravity. Some of you, many of you would say, I don't have influence because I don't lead 30,000 people. I don't have influence because I'm not the leader of a nation. I don't have influence. Nobody's looking at me. If you're following Jesus, you may not have reach, but you have weight. I think of that with Michael. Again, 100% responsible for her response, both to David and to the Lord, judged righteously by God for her reaction. At the same time, I wonder, as David's first wife, how years of seeing him marry other women and bring other concubines into his house affected her. Originally, she loved him, 1 Samuel 20, 18, 28. She loved David. And now in 2 Samuel 6, she despises him. What happens in those intervening years? Well, one is her dad tries to kill David, and so he runs away. And which was the right thing for him to do. He doesn't bring her with him. Probably the right thing to do as well. His life is very tenuous. He has no idea what the next day holds. Probably the safest thing for her to be left behind. But as David, when during David's time away, her dad, Saul, takes her and gives her to another man. Paltiel, P-A-L-T-I-L. And he loves her. We see that in 2 Samuel 3. When David says to Abner, bring Michael back to me. This guy, Paltiel walks behind her, weeping the whole way as Abner physically takes her and gives her back to David. He is devoted to her. And in those intervening years when Michael, through no fault of her own, was given to this other man who is devoted to her, David takes other wives, at least six while he's in Hebron, and more while he's in Jerusalem. And he starts sleeping with concubines as well. So imagine, regardless of the cultural conditions of the time, as the first wife, how do you feel? How do you feel? Affairs are devastating. This is not an affair. This is a full out. This is an in your face relationship. This is my next wife. You say to your current wife. And here's my third wife and my fourth and my fifth. Think about how that affects you. David's choices. He has there's a gravity to him. Michael is caught in his orbit. She's 100% responsible for the way she responds when she sees him coming into Jerusalem with the ark. Totally responsible. I just don't know that God, that David made it easier for her. I wonder if I had breakfast with a guy this week. He said, do you think Michael saw David as a hypocrite? Probably so. Probably so. I wonder for Michael when she's thinking of God, you picked him? Really? Really? I can see why you didn't pick my dad. What about my brother, Jonathan? What about him? This is the best you could do. I wonder for her. Again, she's responsible for her own heart. 
but she's caught in David's orbit. Most of the people caught in David's orbit are way better for it. It's a great man, godly man. The people who saw him as the king acting like a fool when he's bringing the ark in and recognize, man, there's something more important than his dignity, and it's his love for the Lord. That changed their life, I'm sure. Most people who are in David's orbit are better for it. Michael doesn't appear to be better for it. Even his response to her, there's not a whole lot of compassion. She shoots at him, and he shoots right back. That's a negative. Here's the positive, and it's what I want you leaving with. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, your choices, you as a person, you have spiritual weight. The, the word for God's glory in the Old Testament is kabod, it's heaviness, it's weightiness. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about us as carriers of God's glory. That if, a, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives within you. That gives you spiritual weight. John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so you can think of your growing relationship with the Lord. And as you grow with him, your weight, your gravity increases. Just your presence in the room changes things. People fall into your orbit, not in a narcissistic, egocentric way. But because of God in you, the spiritual weight that that carries not just by your words, not just by your actions, but your very presence, you can begin to affect other people in other circumstances. Just you being there changes the... the you can see on that picture that it, it, it pulls in the room or in the relationship. I want to encourage you, those of you who don't feel like you have any reach, and maybe you don't have much reach, if you're following Jesus, you have significant Wait, and ultimately, that may mean more. Let's take a minute and pray. I want to do this real quick with everybody's eyes closed. If you would say, I wrestle with that whole concept of influence. I don't necessarily see myself as an influencer. And as you're talking, honestly, I would say I'm a lightweight. I don't feel Like I have much spiritual gravity. I may know that in my head, but I don't live on Monday as someone who's carrying around within the glory of God, the heaviness and weightiness of God. If you would slip your hand up, I want to pray for you corporately before we go into worship. Is there anyone who would say, that's me? Thanks. A couple more. Good. Thank you. Go and put your hands down. God, I pray for those men and women uh, who would say, that's, I don't, that doesn't resonate. I don't recognize the spiritual influence I have as I move through the hallways or my house or my job, wherever that is. God, I pray that in these next couple of minutes, you would give them a glimpse of the precious treasure, that Second Corinthians 4 treasure that they're carrying around with them. They would recognize what, J- what Jeremy said at the beginning. They're an ark in a lot of ways. They would recognize the influence that they carry, the gravity and the weight that they bring to situations, not because of anything about them, but because you live within them. I pray that would encourage those men and women, places where maybe they feel helpless, 
places where they feel like they don't make a difference, places where they feel like it doesn't matter if I show up or not, you would give them revelation in the next couple of minutes. All of those things are lies. Them showing up makes a huge difference. They have a lot to offer, even if they never open their mouth. God, for all of us, I pray now as we turn our hearts to you, we close with worship. I pray that you would form and shape our desires. That we would rightly order our loves. We live in this affluent society that sells us the lie that the more we have or having the right things, whatever that means, is going to make us the person that we want to be. And we know in our heads that's not true, but the pull is so seductive and so strong. And so for these next couple of minutes, we want to say no to that and say yes to you and say form us and shape us in worship. You guys can stand. Form us and shape us as we worship. God, I pray that you would stir the hearts of men and women in this room to begin to practice holy habits that will in turn stir and form and shape within them holy appetites, which will lead ultimately to becoming holy men and women. God, I pray for people who've been discouraged in the past. I pray that you would fire them this morning with commitment and intentionality around prayer, around worship, around reading the word, whatever those practices are. And God, I pray as we worship that you would not just form us, that we would express to you the deep commitment and love that we have for you. Whatever that looks like outwardly, God, I pray that the love that we have for you would demand expression through our lives and through our bodies. That you would set people free this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth according to their Psalm 139, the way you formed and knit and shaped them together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with a couple of minutes of worship and then Bo will dismiss us.